Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to Dermosphere, the podcast by dermatologists, for dermatologists, and for the dermatologically curious. This is a bonus episode. This is a lecture that I gave to a group of pediatric residents in Rwanda as part of the University of Utah's Global Health Division. I was asked to focus on infections and infestations, especially serious dermatologic infections that you might encounter in the hospital, because I guess the pediatricians in Rwanda, at least in residency, spend most of their time on the wards. I was also asked to speak about burn infections, which I knew very little about before this lecture, so I had to learn some stuff myself. And then I also talked a little bit about just common infections and infestations that I thought might be helpful at least to the folks in Rwanda, and I hope it's helpful for you as well. If you would like to see the video version, it is available on our website, dermospherepodcast.com. Just go to the bonus episodes section and you should be able to find it. Also wanted to let you know that I am still running a CME activity, at least I will be if you listen to this before the end of the year 2020. It's about atopic dermatitis. It's free. It's worth 1.5 CME hours. It's free form. You go at your own pace. You take as much time as you want, basically. I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Here we go. Hi, guys. Uh, as Molly said, my name is Luke Johnson. I'm an assistant professor of dermatology here at the University of Utah, and it's very happy to be giving a lecture to people on the other side of the world. That's pretty neat. Hopefully, you can hear me and understand my accent okay. So I'll, Molly told me to speak a little bit more slowly because of the accent issue. Um, and we'll leave some time at the end for questions, I think. But if any questions come up while we're going, feel free to ask them. Molly asked me to talk about dermatologic infections and infestations in pediatric patients. And uh, when I asked her for more clarity, because that would cover a lot of ground, she said that they were most interested in serious infections, like you might have in an inpatient, and then maybe in just very common things as well. So I've divided this into real bad stuff, and then just a few common conditions that hopefully I can help out with. So I don't really have any conflicts of interest. I run some CME events. I'm not sure if you guys use the term CME in Rwanda. It stands for Continuing Medical Education. And in these days with the coronavirus, all of our things are virtual. So I suppose anybody from all over the world can be part of those CME events, including you, if you are especially interested in dermatology. So I'll talk a little bit more about those at the end of the lecture in case you're interested in joining any of those. In addition, I co-host a podcast about dermatology research, which is intended for dermatologists and people practicing clinical dermatology. So if you are a fan of both podcasts and of dermatology, you might want to check out Dermosphere. And I plan to release this lecture as a bonus episode. So here's where I am. I'm not sure if you can see my cursor or not, but in Salt Lake City, Utah, and there's where you guys are, at least that's where Molly tells me you are. I suppose you could actually be in the next room over and I wouldn't know. Um, apparently it would take me 22 hours and 50 minutes to get from Salt Lake City to Rwanda and would cost $2,500. So 
our objectives. So I want to describe in a large part what things look like. So dermatology is a very visual field and it helps us to see lots of pictures of things and lots of things on actual patients to develop kind of this pattern recognition skill. And you probably know that we have a bunch of dermatologic terms. We say papules and plaques and ulcers and things. So it'd be good to practice if not allowed, then at least in your head, how you would describe various skin findings as we show them. And then treatment options for uh, the serious infections and infestations that you see here, as well as the few more common things at the bottom. So first we're gonna talk about the bad stuff. And as I said, feel free to ask questions as we go. I have don't see the chat well, and I can't tell if people are digitally raising their hands. So if you do have questions, you might just have to unmute and shout them out. So this is the sort of case I think of when I think of a scary infection of the skin in a pediatric patient in the hospital. Okay, this is sort of the first thing I thought of when Molly said, do some serious inpatient infections. So this case is a three-week-old baby. She was born premature, so born at 27 weeks, and is in the neonatal intensive care unit. This baby is on broad-spectrum antibiotics, and her vitals have become more unstable in the past 24 hours, and the nurses recently noticed a sore on her back and asked you to come take a look at it. So this is the sort of thing that you would see and I feel like there might be a little bit of a lag because we're on the other side of the world. If anybody feels like speaking aloud and chiming in and saying how you would describe this, that's great. If not, just take a moment, think about it. I like to describe the color of things, where they are on the body, how big they are, and then end with a noun, like papule or plaque or whatever. We have a special noun called an escar, E-S-C-H-A-R, which describes kind of a black, crusty sore that you feel might have an ulcer underneath. And I would call this a circular seven millimeter escar, perhaps, with surrounding erythema. Escar also tends to imply underlying necrosis. So all of that is pretty bad. So this is from an angio-invasive organism. So patients who suffer these sorts of infections are either tiny, tiny babies. So as a pediatric dermatologist, that's the sort of patient I see who has these infections there. Like the patient in the case, they were born premature, they're in the NICU, and they develop a lesion like this. But people on, who are immunosuppressed uh, because of chemotherapy or because of immunosuppressive conditions like AIDS can get these sorts of infections as well. It causes bad disease, as you might guess. And if you just have a single spot, it's usually some kind of cutaneous inoculation. The types of organisms that cause these issues are kind of just all around hanging out in the environment. And so, and especially a newborn baby, especially a premature one, the skin is not a good barrier. So it's strikingly easy for some kind of fungus that's just hanging out in the environment to accidentally get introduced into the skin and from there can get into the blood vessels where it causes real problems. You can also get 
that kind of clinical appearance from disseminated disease. So if somebody has aspergillus in the lungs, for example, then that can disseminate out to the skin. And you might see that in multifocal lesions. So various types of fungi can be angioinvasive, such as aspergillus and fusarium. So can various types of filamentous bacteria, such as mucormycosis, and then some other bacteria can do it too. The most classic one would be Pseudomonas um, aeruginosa. And we even have a special name for angioinvasive Pseudomonas. We say it's ecthyma gangrenosum. So if you see something like that, and you have any kind of suspicion at all for this condition, the most important thing to do is take a piece of the tissue. And you want to take it so that you can evaluate it under the microscope, pathology, and you want to take a piece so you can culture it to determine if there is an organism, what it is, and maybe even get some antimicrobial susceptibilities. While you're waiting for those studies to return, you want to cover the patient with broad-spectrum antimicrobials, especially things for fungus like amphotericin, and wait until the results return to see if you can get some more answers. So the patient in our case, for example, was already on a bunch of antibiotics, um, which is why you would be extra concerned about a fungal infection since she wasn't being covered for fungus. And you need, need strong medicine until you've narrowed it down. And then surgical debridement is also appropriate in a lot of these patients. So this is the picture that we used for our case. This particular patient had angioinvasive fusarium. You can see that they all look fairly similar, these circular necrotic eschars. This patient had pseudomonas, and again, the name for that specific entity is ecthyma gangrenosum. Another tiny baby, this one's obviously a larger ulcer. You can kind of get the idea that due to the shape of the ulcer, this might be due to the fact that the blood vessels are compromised and then the overlying tissue is dying as a result since it's lacking its nutrition. This was aspergillus. And this is the sort of thing you might see under the microscope. Can you guys oh, see my cursor or there's this little pointer thing, maybe I can use that. So this is a skin biopsy specimen. I'm assuming you guys don't look at very many of them, but this is the top of the skin and this is the tissue underneath the skin, the subcutaneous tissue. And this is all dead stuff. All this pinkness is dead tissue. So the epidermis, the top layer of the skin is dead, it's necrotic. The dermis underneath the epidermis is dead, also necrotic. And there's not a lot of inflammation. Um, usually there's not a lot of inflammation in these patients just because they don't have a very robust immune response because they're so immunosuppressed in the first place. And then on higher magnification, you can actually see the angioinvasive organism within the vessel. So this is probably a vein, could be an artery, and these are the septate hyphae of aspergillus just clogging up the vessel so that the under overlying tissue dies. Any questions about angioinvasive organisms? My role as a pediatric dermatologist is mostly to suspect the issue when somebody has a lesion that looks suspicious and to take the sample. And um, usually then the pediatricians cover the patient with appropriate antimicrobials and maybe the surgeons get involved if necessary.
All right, we're going to move on to less scary cases now, but still cases that are considered emergent or urgent and would be present in inpatients. So our next case is a 17-year-old boy. He comes into the emergency area with cough, fever, injection of his conjunctiva, and then he's got recent sores around his mouth as well. And on physical exam, he is febrile. He's got a decreased pulse ox at 88%. And I'm told that other doctors out there have these things called stethoscopes that they use to listen to people's hearts and lungs and things. So I guess some other doctor does that and finds lung crackles. And then there's a few skin and mucosal findings as well. And the chest x-ray might look something like this. So think to yourself, what does this patient perhaps have? And this is what he looks like. You can see conjunctiva are definitely injected. Sort of this crusted shallow ulcers on his lips, plus the other pulmonary findings that we discussed. So this is mycoplasma-induced rash and mucositis, M-I-R-M, or MIRM to its friends. And mycoplasma in particular can sometimes cause this reaction where it's largely mucosal, but you usually find a little bit of stuff on the skin. This was recognized as a distinct entity fairly recently probably seven or eight years ago. And our old literature in the dermatology world is complicated by the fact that people used to think that this was a form of Stevens-Johnson syndrome because it affects mucosal services and people are kind of sick, but it's not the same thing we now know. So one important way in which it's different is that these patients usually do pretty well and the skin involvement is fairly minimal for the most part, though the mucosal involvement can be a little bit more impressive. But usually you just need supportive care and antibiotics to treat their underlying infection. Again, mycoplasma is the most well-described. Most of them just get better, they don't have sequelae. So if you suspect something like this, do sort of the pneumonia workup with a chest X-ray and so on, and also check specifically for mycoplasma, if able, and this condition has also been reported with other infections as well, such as those listed down there at the bottom. They're mostly sort of respiratory illnesses like Chlamydophila pneumoniae and influenza and from rhinoviruses. And there are a few other viruses that are thought to cause it such as EBV, Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus, maybe some enteroviruses. So now there are some people who want to call this reactive infectious mucocutaneous eruption. R-I-M-E or RIME because it's not always due to mycoplasma, so you can't really always call it mycoplasma-induced rash and mucositis. But the important reasons to suspect this condition are when patients have mucosal findings, just a little bit of skin stuff, and you think they might also have pneumonia or another respiratory illness. So you can see these patients have pretty crusty lips, their eyes look pink, and there's a little bit of stuff on their skin, but not all that much. If anybody has questions about that, please let me know. Otherwise, we're gonna move on to another case. So a nine-month-old baby girl has been acting a bit sick, according to her family, for a couple days. One of my mentors used to use the term punky for kids who are acting a little bit sick. 
And this patient also has some fever, hasn't been eating well, it's kind of has decreased energy. And then her mom reports with much concern that this morning her skin started to fall off. So your hint as to what this could be is this picture here, which looks like a cluster of grapes and is Staphylococcus aureus. So this is the picture of the patient here. You can see she's a little dry around the lips, but she doesn't have those crusted shallow ulcers and erosions like the patients with rime had. And you can see that indeed she is losing some skin. It seems to be peeling off in places. This is staphylococcal scalded skin syndrome. And what happens is a patient gets a staph infection at some part of the body, it could be anywhere, and then that staph bacteria elaborates a toxin that then travels through the blood and affects the skin sort of all over the body. So the actual areas that are peeling skin do not usually have the staph infection. The staph infection is somewhere else, but the toxin is present and is cleaving through the top layer of the skin so that it can peel off. This condition, the peeling skin or the desquamating skin usually starts in the flexures, like in the axillae, also periorally. It's, there's no mucosal involvement. So kids often with this condition will have fairly dry chapped lips just because they're kind of otherwise sick and they're breathing through their mouths and things. But they don't have the mucosal involvement that you would see in something like Stevens-Johnson syndrome or mycoplasma-induced rash and mucositis. So that's an important way to distinguish this from some other conditions. And if you look at it on histology, the cleavage where the toxin cleaves through the skin is at the level of the stratum corneum. We'll look at a couple pictures. And this condition, kind of like rhyme, assuming you give the patient appropriate antibiotics, people get better and they don't really have sequelae afterward. Commonly, clindamycin is used for this condition because there's some thought that clindamycin has the potential to reduce toxin production by the staph bacteria. I don't think there's great data that says that for sure, so I usually allow the primary treating team to decide on the appropriate anti-staphylococcal antibiotic based on local sensitivities. So this is a diagram of the skin. So this is sort of what you would see under the microscope, though this has more fun colors. So this is the very top layer, the stratum corneum, kind of the dead layer of skin that's on the very top. And then this part here is the epidermis, top layer of skin. And then this part is the dermis. And then under that is fat and stuff. So right here, right underneath the stratum corneum is the stratum granulosum. And in staph scalded skin syndrome, this is where the split occurs. So this very top part of the skin is what peels off and what you see underneath is this part, epidermis. That is in contrast to Stevens-Johnson syndrome or toxic epidermal necrolysis, where the epidermis just dies top to bottom. And because it's dead, all of the epidermis peels away. So when you look to see what's underneath it, you're not looking at epidermis, you're looking at dermis.
this is the sort of thing you might see in the microscope. This is healthy, normal skin. So this really up top, you can barely see it, but it's kind of this basket weavy white stuff. That's the stratum corneum. And then right underneath it is the stratum granulosum where the cleavage layer is in Staphylococcus sin syndrome. And then Stevens-Johnson syndrome, all this purple epidermis would have died and peeled away. So here is our patient with Staphylococcus skin syndrome. And this is a patient I had here at the University of Utah who has toxic epidermal necrolysis. And you have to squint a little bit, but hopefully you can see that there's a difference between the type of peeling. So the peeling here in the staph scalded skin patient is very superficial and thin. And what you see underneath is epidermis, unprotected epidermis. So it's a little moist, looks a little bit raw, but still epidermis. Whereas in this patient, the layers that peel off are thicker and what you're looking at underneath are pink, moist dermis. I know it's a little bit hard, especially if you don't spend all day looking at skin like I do, but this is to try to contrast the two conditions. Okay, feel free to ask questions about staph scalded skin, otherwise we will move on. Our next case is a 15 month old boy and his chief complaint is fever and he's had a rash that's been getting worse over the past three days and he has a known history of atopic dermatitis or eczema. So maybe you find some dermatology notes in the medical record saying that they've treated his atopic dermatitis. And on exam, he's febrile, he's drooling, he just looks kind of sick. And this is what his left thigh looks like on exam. We can practice our dermatologic lexicon, think to yourself, or even say out loud if you feel like it, how you might describe this. He seems to have shallow ulcers here where he has no skin anymore that are kind of jagged, angulated, as well as these little sort of translucent bumps. If those bumps are filled with fluid, you could call them vesicles. If they're not filled with fluid, you would call them papules because they're smaller than a centimeter. Some of them look like they have little divots on top, so you could call them umbilicated vesicles or papules. Some of them have heme or hemorrhagic crust on top of them. And then this background skin here doesn't look perfectly healthy either. It's a little pink, a little dry. Maybe there's some underlying eczema there. So this condition is eczema herpeticum. So people with eczema and a few other dermatology conditions, but more commonly, the most common is eczema, can get herpes infections that sort of spreads rapidly throughout their skin. So in atopic dermatitis, the skin barrier is leaky. And because it's leaky, other things can get into the skin, some of which are just irritating and help create the itchy pink rash of eczema. But bacteria and viruses can get in more easily as well and one of the most common viruses that can do it is HSV. And because the skin is sort of leaky everywhere, this virus just can spread throughout the body. This picture here and the previous one were fairly dramatic. It can be that dramatic. It can be pretty debilitating. It can even kill people, but it can also be very mild. I've seen a couple patients who have eczema and I noticed 
you know, little vesicle on one finger and say, well, we might as well swab it. And it ended up being positive for HSV. So then we put them on appropriate therapy, but they did it all as an outpatient. And I don't think they had much of many complications with it. But in the inpatient world, you worry more about things like this. You can get it with some other infections too, such as varicella and vaccinia, but HSV tends to be the most common one. So we talked about how the severity varies and that it can be bad. People can be pretty febrile. They, they can go all over the skin or sort of just part of it. And then you sort of get these new lesions coming and going in standard herpes timeframe fashion, seven to 10 days. And because the skin is open and crusted, you saw these pictures, there's a, you know, a lot of areas where there's not skin serving as a good barrier. It's easy to get a secondary bacterial infection on top, most commonly staph. So if you look at this patient, you can see that she's got some yellow crust around her mouth and in other areas of her face, which is pretty classic for impetigo. In dermatology, we could say that her eczema is impetigenized. She's got a staph infection on top. So what to do if you have somebody with eczema herpeticum? You will want to have a fairly low threshold to get ophthalmology involved if they've got lesions near the eye. And then depending on how sick they are, you may or may not want to admit them to the hospital. And then you want to swab the lesions if you are able to do so for HSV detection. You can do that with viral culture. You can do it with a direct fluorescence antibody test. That's DFA. There's one or two other ways to do it as well. Um, and then you can swab the wounds that you suspect might have bacteria in them as well to see if there are bacteria and if they are their antimicrobial sensitivities. You, of course, want to give them appropriate antiherpetic treatment. Acyclovir is the most commonly used one. And then if they have a secondary bacterial infection, then of course antibiotics as well. And then don't forget to treat the underlying atopic dermatitis, which got them into this mess in the first place. Usually when I've seen this condition, and it's been serious enough to think about admitting the patient, the patient's eczema has been fairly uncontrolled. They've been lost to follow up or they haven't been able to pick up their medicines for one reason or another, or they didn't understand the treatment and so they haven't been using them. But occasionally I see this happen in people who are pretty good about treating their eczema and they just got unlucky. But you wanna do what you can to reduce the risk of it happening again. So in addition to treating it in the hospital, make sure they follow up with whoever it is who treats atopic dermatitis where you guys are. As far as when they're in the hospital, a nice bland emollient, so a moisturizer to help restore the skin barrier while they're in the hospital. My favorite that we have available here is Vaseline or just plain petroleum jelly. It's super cheap, does a great job moisturizing the skin, nobody gets allergic to it, it's great stuff, um, but whatever bland emollient you have available is fine. And then after the lesions have crusted over, is probably the time to start applying topical steroids to try to heal the inflamed skin. Okay, there are no questions about eczema herpeticum. I will move along to another photograph of it. So again, it kind of looks the same. This is where dermatologists start recognizing patterns. Circular crusted lesions that coalesce in places. And when they coalesce, they are sort of polycyclic, we say, which looks like there's a bunch of circles just put together. You can see how open the skin is. So you can imagine that it's easy for bacteria to get in there. 
So I was once giving a lecture kind of like this, and somebody asked me to talk more about the different types of herpes infections because it can be confusing. So we're just gonna have a brief tangent here to talk about herpes versus varicella or chickenpox versus herpes zoster or shingles. So just straight up herpes um, is infection with the HSV1 or 2 virus, and it can include a lot of different presentations. We commonly think of it in mucosal areas like around the mouth, on the lips, in the United States, we say people get cold sores, which is a term for herpes labialis. Uh, you can obviously get genital herpes as well. And then I've discovered that some dermatologists aren't aware that you can also get herpes just on your skin. So you don't have to have eczema to get it on your skin. You can just get it on your skin from some part of your skin coming into contact with the virus. So you can see this photo here, have somebody with it on their nose. And herpes has a fairly distinctive appearance. They're vesicles on an erythematous base. They're usually clustered. They can appear punched out once they've eroded or ulcerated. And they usually have the scalloped slash polycyclic border. So again, if you look at here, you can imagine that this was once a bunch of different circles kind of all put together. So varicella, primary varicella or chickenpox, when you get the varicella virus for the first time, it's technically a herpes virus, so it looks a bit similar. It's rare now in areas where the varicella vaccine is available. And what you see are vesicles scattered all over the skin surface that are in various stages of healing. So textbooks often emphasize that these vesicles are in various stages of healing in order to contrast this condition with a much more serious condition where people get vesicles everywhere that are all at the same stage, and that serious condition is smallpox, and I hope that none of us sees that in our lifetime. The vesicles in varicella have often been described as dewdrops on a rose petal. And I know that pediatric residents don't get out to go outside and look at roses very much, so this is what a rose petal looks like, and this is what a dewdrop on it might look like. And here is the lesion in a patient with varicella. So the rose petal is supposed to be this erythema underneath and the dewdrop is the vesicle on top. So you can see this patient has vesicles and crusted lesions and erythematous resolving macules and they're in various stages of healing and they're widespread. Usually patients are sick, they don't feel good. Uh, the older you are, the more serious your illness tends to be and the patient is contagious until all the lesions have crusted over. And varicella is an airborne disease and the virus can float out of the skin lesions and float into your nose. So this patient should be on some kind of airborne contact precautions until all of their lesions have crusted over. It's especially dangerous for pregnant women. So make sure that pregnant women stay away from people with this condition and, um, and immunosuppressed people as well can get real serious disease. This is what it looks like in darker skin, but still crusty, still various stages of healing. So zoster or shingles is reactivation of the varicella virus. 
So all of these herpes viruses are rude and they like to lay dormant in our various ganglia and our nerves. So that's why if you get HSV herpes labialis, you just can get flares repeatedly because there's virus still in there somewhere. So the same is true with zoster or shingles. You get varicella, chickenpox, and the virus is dormant, but it can reactivate. There are different triggers for it reactivating. It can reactivate due to stress, and it can reactivate due to injury, like a sunburn. And there was a recent study that said the most predictive factor of whether or not you will get shingles is whether or not you have a family history of shingles. It tends to be painful, though it isn't always. Classically, it's dermatomal, so that's based on how the virus reactivates. It comes out of a single dermatome. People usually aren't as sick, but it can disseminate, especially if people are immunosuppressed. So you can get disseminated shingles, which looks a lot like chickenpox. Okay, uh, that is all of the discussion of specific dermatologic infections in terms of inpatient stuff. Molly asked me to talk about burns and burn infections as well, because it sounds like you guys take care of a lot of burns, I guess. I don't really know much about burns because in our hospital, we are fortunate to have a burn center where a bunch of people who are not meet and to take care of these patients. But Molly said to do it. So I looked up some articles. So this article, so there's three or four articles here I'm just gonna mention that I thought would be helpful for people taking care of burns when it comes to infections. So apparently burn victims get their infections from either their skin wounds or from ventilators. So apparently after 72 hours, infections are the most common cause of death in a burn patient. And ventilator-associated pneumonia, or VAP, which I basically never have to think about, is a big deal for these types of patients. And there was this nice timeline in the article that showed you what sort of infections people get and how other things vary as the time course goes on. So you can see that a skin and soft tissue infection is most prevalent in the very early part of a patient's hospitalization, like in the first, the first three to seven days maybe. And then the infection is most commonly with Staphylococcus aureus, as one might guess. But then the chance for skin and soft tissue infection decreases rapidly the longer the patient stays in the hospital, but the risk for things like pneumonia, sepsis, urinary tract infections go up, as do infections with other organisms like Pseudomonas and Enterobacter. And then antibacterial resistance also goes up the longer they stay in the hospital, as you might guess. There's a nice table in this article. Uh, I'll just go over here again in case anybody wants to make a note of the article, which talks about generally accepted strategies to manage skin infections in burn patients. And I just called out a few in these bullet points that I thought were kind of especially interesting. Maybe they're interesting just because I don't take care of a lot of burn patients and you guys already know this stuff. But Early excision and graft, if patients have full thickness burns, apparently is helpful. And then using topical antimicrobials for burn wounds and for debridement seems like a good idea. If you're worried that people have ventilator-associated pneumonia, especially if it's due to inhalation injury during their burn, then bronchoscopy, bronchoscopy can be helpful. And then swab them all over, I guess, if they're pretty sick and you're trying to figure out where the infection's coming from. Here's another article that said, strict infection control measures, constant wound surveillance with regular sampling of tissues for quantitative culture, 
and early excision and wound closure remain the principal adjuncts to control of invasive infections in burn patients. So everybody seems to agree on culturing and excising areas of dead skin. These guys say that the available evidence does not support the role of systemic antibiotic prophylaxis in the management of the majority of burn patients, but some patients like those who require mechanical ventilation and some people getting split thickness skin grafts might benefit from prophylactic antibiotics. Okay, that's all I got for burns. Just wanted to hit on a few common infections really quick because I figure it's helpful to get a pediatric dermatologist's take on some of these. So molluscum, super common uh, where I am. I assume it's super common where you are just because it seems to be everywhere. But what I prefer is to just reassure the family and do nothing. We have a treatment called candida antigen, which is a protein derived from candida that the, is supposed to inspire the body's immune system to mount an immune response against all of the molluscum on the body. So you just inject a little bit, 0.3 ml, into the dermis underneath one molluscum lesion, and I repeat it monthly for at least three times to see if it works. It's nice because you cause discomfort in just one area, but hopefully get a reaction everywhere. Gentle freezing, like with a Q-tip, is okay, but because molluscum is not dangerous and goes away on its own, it's difficult for me to justify using destructive techniques, which might like leave scars or pigment changes in the skin, but sometimes people's families are desperate. And then zinc has a little bit of data supporting its role in treatment of viral infections in patients. Sometimes people take it by mouth, but it also is available in creams, specifically in diaper pastes. So at least in this country, the strongest we can get over the counter is 40% zinc oxide, and it's in products like Desitin Max Strength. And I say to parents, well, I'm not sure this will help, but it might, and it's definitely safe, easy, cheap. So if you want to do something, maybe worth a try. I don't like scraping them off with curatage. I don't like cantharidin, which is this blistering medicine that you can put on them. Again, because I worry about leaving scars and performing a painful procedure on a pediatric patient for a condition that's not dangerous and self-resolving. And the more I read about molluscum, the more I'm convinced that nothing we do actually helps, which was the conclusion of this Cochrane review. It just eventually goes away. There's a nice quote by Voltaire, I believe, that says, medicine is just entertaining your patient until nature cures their disease. And sometimes I feel that's what we're doing when we treat molluscum. Warts. Some days in clinic feel like this. Warts. Warts everywhere. So my preferred treatments for warts. First, um, at least in this country, if you're age 9 to 45, then you are approved to get the HPV vaccine, which is called Gardasil. And while it is designed for genital warts and cervical cancer, there is some data that suggests it can help against more run-of-the-mill warts as well. And I think everybody should get it anyway, so I always try to push that on families. Freezing warts works okay. Salicylic acid works fine. You can do the candida antigen injection treatment as well. And then cimetidine um, is this H2 blocker that's really for like GERD reflux. But there's a little bit of data saying it can maybe help kids fight off viral infections. I'm not sold, but it's pretty safe. 
Again, I don't love cantharidin. I find it unpredictable. Some people get big old blisters and some people don't have much of a reaction at all. Cutting them out, I don't like doing. You make a big wound, you make a scar, the wart can come back anyway. And then I mentioned that there's evidence for the HPV vaccine as treatment for some of these warts. Scabies. So in preparation for this lecture, I looked at some resources that talked about what are some of the most common dermatologic conditions in Rwanda. And I believe the first was superficial fungal infections and the second was scabies. So I thought I'd address it. Um, and I'll read this cartoon just because it's hard to concentrate if trying to read a cartoon. So he says, hey, I heard you had babies. Congratulations. Oh no, actually it was scabies. So he says, oh, they're adorable. But we know they're not really adorable. So my tips for scabies are to use permethrin cream if you have it available, even for babies and pregnant women, even though we sometimes are taught to use other stuff for them, but it's fine. There's not really a lower age limit for the permethrin cream. And one of my mentors gave me the trick of just telling the patient not to bathe or wash themselves before applying it. That's because you want it to stay on the surface of the skin and uh, bathing, I guess, makes it more likely that it'll sink in a little bit. Ivermectin is also a good choice. So this is an oral medicine. You guys are probably familiar with it. And there is this article in the New England Journal where they used ivermectin in Fiji for population-based treatment of scabies because it was such a big issue there. Um, and people did great. So nobody really had any side effects. But there was also this case report in the New England Journal where a little boy um, went into a coma, basically, from ivermectin toxicity because the little boy had a mutation in this gene, which is responsible for keeping the medicine out of the CNS. So apparently there are some breeds of dogs that just normally have this mutation. So in veterinary medicine, the vets know not to give this medicine to certain breeds of dogs because of this. And uh, it's rarely been reported in humans, I guess. So I still feel it's a very safe medicine, but I've been a little bit more worried ever since reading this article. And then there is a nice article here about what to do to get rid of scabies from fomites. So scabies likes to live on people mostly, but it can also be in bedding, in stuffed toys, in clothing. And so what do you do for that? Well, there's this nice flow chart here. Do you have access to power? If you don't have access to power, or if you have things that you didn't, well, can't wash anyway, then you put whatever it is in a closed plastic bag, and then you leave it in the closed plastic bag for some amount of time. And the amount of time depends on your climate. So I don't know a whole lot about Rwanda, but my guess is that it qualifies as a warm climate, where it's more like 26 degrees and has 80% relative humidity. So if that's the case, then you want to close all that stuff in the plastic bag and leave it in there for eight days and the scabies will die if they don't get blood in that amount of time. If your patient does have access to power, they can throw their clothing in a freezer if it's cold enough for five hours or they can use a washing machine. If they um, have hot water, they wash it in hot water and if they have a dryer, they dry it on a hot setting. But if you have a washing machine, but you don't have hot water, doesn't really do you any good, so you're back to the closed plastic bag approach. 
And finally, if you guys have dermatoscopes available, you can find scabies with your dermatoscope, which is, is an extremely satisfying experience because you can find a little burrow on your patient and then you put your dermatoscope right up there and you see this, which is sometimes called the delta bomber sign or the delta sign because it looks like a little triangle. This is the scabies mite and all this junk back here where these arrows are are scabala, poop and eggs and stuff. And if you can see that, you don't even need to scrape it off and prove it under a microscope. You have your diagnosis. That's mostly the lecture, so let's go through and make sure we hit our objectives. So we wanted to describe the clinical appearance and the treatment options for these things. So angioinvasive organisms look like dark circular eschars or jagged ulcers, and you treat them with broad-spectrum antimicrobials and perhaps surgical debridement. Mycoplasma-induced rash and mucositis. You suspect when a patient has mucosal involvement, a little bit of skin stuff, and probably has pulmonary symptoms, and you just treat it with appropriate anti-mycoplasma antibiotics. Staph scalded skin syndrome, you suspect when people have a fairly superficial peeling of the skin, and they're kind of sick otherwise, mostly the peeling starts around the axillae, around the mouth, and you treat them with anti-staphylococcal antibiotics. Eczema herpeticum looks like punched out shallow ulcers or umbilicated vesicles, often clustered in patients with a history of eczema, treat with acyclovir, treat their underlying eczema. Burn infections, we learned for in terms of skin infections, they're more common in the first week or so of hospitalization. Swab them all over and then treat if they are infected, but prophylaxis may be not so important. And then we hit on molluscum warts and scabies as well. Just wanted to let you guys know real quickly about a couple CME events um, that I'm just in charge of because I thought you guys might be interested and in, I mean it's cool that people in Rwanda can attend these virtual sessions I guess. Um, I don't get paid more depending on who shows up. Just thought you might be interested. So one of these is specifically about eczema and if I don't know if you guys do CME where you are but it's worth 1.5 CME hours at least here. The um, Website to get there is a little bit unwieldy, but I can send it to Molly if anybody's interested and she can disseminate it. This is unstructured. It's supposed to be something where people talk to each other a lot and do some self-study modules about eczema. So if you want to learn some more about eczema, it's a fun way to do it. And then there's also this day-long course, I guess it might be night-long where you guys are, that the University of Utah is running called Practical Dermatology for Primary Care. So if Google is to be believed, 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. mountain time here is 4 p.m. to 11 p.m. where you guys are. Costs 100 bucks, which apparently is 97,000 Rwandan francs. Um, and there's a bunch of lectures from the University of Utah faculty that includes pediatric stuff, rashes, other stuff as well. Happy to take questions here um, and happy to take them via email as well. Pretty quiet Hello. over there. Aha. Somebody was listening. Hi, Nepo. I would, I would like to know, just I've seen that when you are treating uh, staphylococcus scared skin syndrome, you are using clindamycin. As long as you are not having clindamycin, can vacuumycin work instead of clindamycin or it's necessary to have clindamycin? So anything that works against staph aureus is fine. It depends on the local sensitivities. So if there's a bunch of MRSA staph where you are, then 
you want to base your antibiotic choice on that. Clindamycin kind of has this historical cachet with staph scalded skin syndrome, but it's certainly not the only choice. So you guys don't, do you feel it's necessary to give for like an antitoxin effect or no? I don't. Okay. I just don't think the evidence is especially robust. I think it's more important to go by your local sensitivities. Any other questions from anybody else? Questions, comments, other topics? Have you guys, have you guys had any cases of eczema herpeticum at Seashu Bay or Seashu Ka? Sounds like potentially no. <laughs> okay. No, no. Hi. So we have, for me, I haven't get, got it yet. Have not yet. Well, if anyone shows up now, you should be well prepared. <laughs> Any other questions? Pascal, did you have a question? Okay, well, thanks for listening, guys. I'm happy to take any other questions via email, and thanks for what you guys are doing. And that will do it for this bonus episode. Thanks so much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to our institutions. Thanks to the University of Utah for supporting this podcast. If you would like to get more episodes, bonus or otherwise, you can do so through Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. You can also find them all on our website, germospherepodcast.com, which is also a good way to get in touch with us. You can also find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, Dermosphere Podcast. Otherwise, stay tuned. Every two weeks, we bring out a new non-bonus episode which discusses some of the latest research in clinical dermatology so you can keep up to date on what's out there. We'll see you next time. 